Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley. So be honest, how closely are you following the impeachment trial of President Trump? I'm not asking how important you think it is or how closely you think people in general should be following it. I'm asking about what you are actually doing. If it makes you feel any better, I will answer first. Once the House voted to impeach and the trial started in the Senate, I pretty much tuned out. Don't worry, I know about John Bolton's book and how different senators are reacting, but I am definitely not glued to the TV or to NPR's live coverage. My colleague Peter Kadzis has been better. He watched virtually all of the House proceedings, and I'm pretty sure he's keeping closer tabs on the Senate trial than I am. But even Peter can't hold a candle to our guest on this episode, Heather Cox Richardson, a Boston College history professor who's been writing a daily digest of all things impeachment titled Letters from an American. Peter and I sat down to talk with her about why she started, what it's been like, what she's learned that she didn't know before, and what is at stake when it comes to the future of American democracy. Take a listen. Heather, thank you for being here. That's a pleasure. So I got to start by asking you how you came to be doing what you are doing right now, chronicling what happened every single day in the course of a process that a lot of us find exhausting just to watch, let alone to document. Why did you start this? It was completely inadvertent. You know, I am a news junkie, so I had seen on September 13th, Friday the 13th, Adam Schiff's letter to um, the acting director of national intelligence saying, we know you've got a whistleblower's report. By law, you have to give it to us, hand it over. And because I'm a political historian, I knew that was a really big deal. But I was moving. I was finishing a new book. I was incredibly busy. The semester had just started. And I was not intending really to do much, much, much with that at all. I did have a professional Facebook page that had about 22,000 followers that I posted on about once a week. And um, it was a Sunday and I, on, on September 15th, and I happened to get stung by a yellow jacket, and I'm allergic. And I did not have an EpiPen. And um, so I had to sit and observe the reaction. I was in the middle of nowhere. I spent half of my life in Maine. So I had to sit and, and observe my reaction. And while I was sitting there, a bored Heather Cox Richardson is not a good thing. So I started to type. And I just wrote down what I'd seen on the 13th. And You were the, starting to write up what you saw on the 13th as you also monitored your reaction, reaction to, to a yellow jacket stain? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, but then people just flooded me with questions. And I tried not to write more than once a week on that Facebook page because I didn't want to overwhelm people. But I thought, oh, they really want to know the answer. So I wrote another post. And all of a sudden there were, you know, thousands of people picking it up. And um, I, it, it's very much a collaborative effort between me and my readers who have questions and ask them and I answer. What has it been like personally to take the time to be doing this? Obviously, you've got you've got your day job. So you need to. Uh, by the way, what's the name again? I, I couldn't remember the name of your forthcoming book. Can you tell me again what it's going to be called? It's called How the South Won the Civil War. Uh, democracy, oligarchy, and the continuing fight for the soul of America. It's not a small book. It goes from Shakespeare to Trump. So it was sort of like, this is not the time to start writing 1,200 words a day on a different topic. Yeah, so so you've got plenty of other things that you, that you have to do as well. What is it like immersing yourself in this impeachment process or procedure um, day in, day out with no respite. I'm wondering specifically if it is cathartic, if any anxieties that you might have about what this means for the country are dispelled in some way or mitigated as you write, or maybe if it's the opposite. 
Well, I definitely feel an obligation to continue, but it is cathartic in the sense that otherwise you just see the news flashing at you all the time. And now I look at it and I say, that story is going to be important. This one is not. And with 35 years of experience doing political history, I have a pretty good sense of which are the stories that matter and which ones don't. So to corral them is all um, very... It uh, helps me to shape it as much as it helps my readers to understand what's really going on. So in that in that way, it's actually a, a good thing to be doing. It's also, though, a very funny thing for a historian to be quite deliberately writing a record for future historians, because that is exactly what I'm trying to do. You know, there have been times in our history, especially the Civil War, when people knew something huge was afoot and they made a point to sit down every day and make a note of it. And I have never seen myself as a diarist. I do love to write letters, but I've never seen myself as a diarist. I don't have a personal diary. And I have come to realize that that is precisely what I'm doing. This, doing. I'm writing this for a historian in 150 years. And the funny thing about it is that as you're doing it, and we look at those old diaries and we say, oh, isn't this funny? She's got this thread running through or, and she f- keeps following these people or whatever. I am not doing that deliberately, but if you follow a number of weeks of what's going on, you'll see the same people keep coming up and the same storylines keep coming up. And you recognize that really there are natural shapes to human society if you are observing them closely. It's kind of an interesting exercise. Yeah, the quick and, and maybe wonky little question. Um, the title of your series, Letters from an American, reminded me of something I read uh, way back in intellectual history in college, Letters from an American Farmer. Um, was that your intent to do this? Yes, it actually was, because uh, that that piece of writing uh, came out immediately after the American Revolution. And what it's famous for is repeatedly asking, what then is this American, this new man? You know, what does it mean to be an American? So I picked that up, but it was also a reference to Alistair Cook's Letters from America, because uh, he started writing in the late 30s, 1940s, and then in the 1950s, and then doing a radio broadcast trying to explain what America looked like on a certain day. And he did it in a number of really picturesque ways. Sometimes he'd focus on one individual. Sometimes he'd look at the government. Sometimes he'd look at bigger, you know, at at different pieces of America to be able to say, this is how America looks today. And I liked the idea that I was trying to encapsulate, if you are here in America today, this is what it looks like. I have a rather eccentric view about impeachment um, in in that, um, to me, this whole thing has been somewhat accidental. A contingent of Democrats since the day Trump was inaugurated have been waiting to impeach him. And I actually think that while they may have been proven correct that that was a sort of unhealthy impulse. Well, yes, I think that uh, it's a mistake to pull Trump apart from the Republican Party at this point. Now, mind you, there's a much longer discussion about how he ended oh, up Oh, I in agree the with you, by the way. That. So um, the reason I think that we are in a crisis and and that the Democrats have seen from the beginning that there were going to be problems with this presidency is that he is in so many ways a continuation of the history of the Republican Party. Because really, if you look at the party, it got taken over really in the 1990s. But uh, Ronald Reagan started the process of the takeover of the Republican Party by a group of, of people who call themselves movement conservatives. And their goal was to destroy the liberal consensus. And that liberal consensus has the word liberal in it, which frightens people. But what it really means is a government that believes it should provide a basic social safety net, um, provide opportunity, and um, make sure that all American citizens have um, equal access to opportunity and to equality before the law. And that desire to destroy that liberal consensus um, 
means that the Republican Party has become an ideological party that could not compromise. And Reagan, of course, gets elected on that with the idea that the government is the problem, not the solution. But even during Reagan's years, that was not an overwhelmingly popular idea. The numbers simply weren't there. So beginning really in 1986, the Republican Party had to increase its share of the evangelical voters who previously had not been adequately involved in the electoral process. And then even when even that wasn't enough, they started to do things like suppress the vote. They started to do gerrymandering. And what we have ended up with is a minority party in charge of American government. And the way they stay in, in power is kind of by cheating, to be honest. And what that means then is you have this real wild disjunction between what Americans in general want and what the people who are ruling are providing. And that has created a crisis right now in American government. And that's what we're dealing with. I accept the broad contours of, of what you're saying. But to me, Trump represents something a little different. I mean, Trump destroyed the Republican establishment, and the party now is totally Trumpian. Now, I get your point, and I agree wholeheartedly that Trumpism is not something distinct from the Republican Party. Um, Trump's style, perhaps, is distinct. But the Republican Party definitely has become an oligarchy. Trump himself just represents something that we've never really seen in political life at a national level. He has people defending him who don't really believe what they're saying because he is a sovereign. He is the head of the the government represents their interests. I think that's right. But but the thing about him is certainly the certainly it's exactly what you're saying that he is um, he has stripped the veneer off any kind of uh, gentility that the Republican Party could argue when it was saying that it was trying to destroy uh, a, a government that protected its citizens or protected water or uh, or our air or provided infrastructure, any of the things that the Republican Party really has been against since the 1980s. But he is doing exactly what the party wanted them to, wanted him to do. So in the process of, for example, destroying the State Department, I mean, we, we tend to focus now on what happened in Ukraine, but from the beginning of Trump taking office, he simply didn't fill positions in the State Department. There were people who wrote articles at the time about how there were entire floors of the State Department where there were no people on them. And, of course, right now we currently don't have anybody in charge of pandemic diseases, which is a really unfortunate thing. That's unfortunate thing. timing there, isn't it? <laughs> well, but it's not just that. I mean, if you if you go down the list, he has is giving to... To the Republican coalition that has been in place 1980s and the 1990s, all their wish list. And, um, and that is a wish list that represents the interests of a very small minority of people and the people at the top of that oligarchy. I mean, I imagine, and I'm only imagining, that if Pence were president, he'd fill most of these jobs. He'd fill them with cronies and with people who would be doing those. I, I mean, there, there is, to me an accidental quality to Trump. Look back at the videos of the night he was elected. And not so much his face. Look at his family's face. Look at his wife's face. Yeah, they did not expect he was going to be elected. This was like the, the only person, I think, who expected him to be elected was Stephen K. Bannon, um, who, you know, was sort of the dark genius. Well, there's, as you talk about the accidental quality or lack of uh, an accidental quality. I mean, it seems like Heather's saying that, that his actions in office represent part of a continuum with where the GOP has been headed for a long time. And you're talking, uh, it sounds to me more about 
the the accidental nature of him finding himself where he is right now at this moment in political history as an individual. Am I right about that, or am I mis? Am I misreading? Well, but I think to go a step further, I think your your point is, and I I 100% agree with this. He's never been a politician. He's a salesman. So when he kept hearing, "We're going to destroy the government," you know, somebody like Pence <laughs> would have sort of lowered their eyelids a little bit and said, "Yes, we're going to tell people we're going to destroy government, but we're going to keep filling the positions just with our cronies." He said, "We said we're going to destroy government. We're going to destroy government." And now they're faced with the problem of having a lot of constituents who were like, I, I didn't mean my government. I meant somebody else's government. And this is exacerbating the issue of the fact we currently have a group of people in power who are enacting policies that the majority of Americans don't like. Let's get back to impeachment. I'm wondering if anything has happened in the course of impeachment working its way through the House and now the Senate has surprised you or has forced you to change your expectations uh, of a party or a politician. Yes, and I should not have been surprised, but I, at, at heart, am a naive optimist, I suspect. Um, the, the, the real eye-opener for me was the day that um, Jim Jordan started uh, cross-examining people in the um, House impeachment investigation hearings. And it was and calling on people and talking over witnesses and refusing to let them get a word in edgewise. And all of a sudden, the light bulb dawned. And that is that I'm, I'm, I am a cynic about politics. I know there's a lot about spin and people put their own ideas on stuff and they, they make things happen to support their side. But it became very clear to me that he wasn't even trying to do that. He was simply creating sound bites then to hand to Fox News or or Oanon or however you pronounce that. Yeah, One America News One Network. One America News Network, and and that it was designed deliberately designed to create an alternative reality, and the fact that I have I have known for a long time that there were Congress people who did not believe in the American experiment, did not believe in American democracy, and and I uh, deplore the, that idea. But the idea that they were deliberately trying to create an alternative reality that was not in any way based in facts and sell it to their viewers was, to me, um, shocking to the point that it looked to me like a form of fascism. And it it really, you know, a lot. I wrote about that night and a lot of my readers were like, oh, everyone knew this. And I was like, I didn't. I didn't know that they were so disdainful of American democracy that they were deliberately trying to undermine the concept of argument based on fact. Like, fine, spin the facts however you want. But the fact that they were essentially denying the principles of the Enlightenment on which this country is founded was completely shocking to me. And then I think that played out in the Senate trial in the sense that I absolutely expected the president's defenders to spin the facts however they they felt was important to, to defend him. That's how our system works. You might not like it, but that's absolutely how our system works. But what I was not prepared for was the fact that they, again, tossed overboard the entire concept of protecting the president based on facts and instead were going to use the space that they had in front of the, the cameras to essentially do what Donald Trump had tried to pressure Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky into doing to smear Joe Biden. You know, it is not a trial about the president. They are not answering the, the articles of impeachment, which are very clear. They are not um, responding to the facts at hand. They are simply saying, no, 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 this is all about Joe Biden. And that uh, it just shows such an extraordinary disdain for our democracy that it 
you know, you asked me earlier whether or not this was a unique moment in American history. Yeah, before the mic started rolling, we were kicking that around. There are a number of ways in which it is unique, but the fact that there are a number of people who care about American democracy arguing with a bunch of people who don't is absolutely brand new in American history. Richard Nixon's people tried to defend him based along the ideas of, of a, a trial in which they would defend their president against what he, against what the House had accused him of. Andrew Johnson, same thing. You know, the, the whole idea that we're just going to throw out the system and smear our opponents, that is not the way American democracy has worked. As an aside here, I think it's going to be very interesting to see whether the 2020 – I think the 2020 presidential election is going to be the first internet versus television election. Hmm. Um, and this deconstructed style of politics that the Republicans are so good at – Democrats aren't bad at it, but the Republicans are better at it – of speaking to be quoted online – you know, on your private sort of house network, uh, not to mention Fox News. The proliferation of media is having, I think, a tremendous effect. Do you, you let me pick on something uh, up on something there. One of the things that happens in the 1990s is the weaponization of the idea of voter fraud. And this is a deliberate tactic of the Republican Party to suggest that Democrats only win by voter fraud. And quite famously, there were two cases in the 90s of... Um, Newt Gingrich, uh, under Newt Gingrich, um, of accusing two uh, Democratic uh, a congressman and a senator of being elected by voter fraud. And there was an investigation into those things, and the investigation went for a solid year. And they kept showing up in front of the news cameras every night saying, oh, we, we know there's voter fraud, we know there's voter fraud, we know there's voter fraud. And when the reports finally came out, they said, you know, there's absolutely no evidence of voter fraud. And they got out in front of the cameras and said, there was no evidence because they hid the evidence. Well, you know, it's one of those <laughs> things. But that's, that's where the we great get... thing about conspiracy theories, right? Is, well, exactly. Know, but anything then... that seems exculpatory just shows that the conspiracy is even bigger than you first well, thought. <laughs> yes. Well, this is my point, And this is in 1998, after a mayoral election in Florida, in Miami, Florida, which was a complete nightmare, but the the two candidates who were both um, accused of fraud and uh, uh, the the election was fraudulent. Um, neither one of the candidates who was engaged in that was a Democrat, by the way. But on the heels of that, in 1998, the Florida legislature passes voter ID that knocks, uh, by some estimates, as many as 200,000 voters out of the election right before the 2000 election, which is, of course, the one that hangs on Florida and that Al Gore loses by uh, by a, a handful of votes. And then I think was, you know, kind of, again, when I talk about a minority um, governing party, the sense that, OK, we can game the system. This is this is one way we can go forward. We can game the system. I got to ask you, I'm glad you brought up that phrase minority governing party because it seems to me important that we not overstate the extent to which uh, the president's supporters are a minority in the country. They, they, it seems to me, are clearly less than half of the American electorate, but they're not a small portion, right? It's a good, what, 40, low 40s percent of people who like the way the current administration is doing business and like the longstanding priorities that are being advanced in this current administration. It's not a small part of American society, but um, I think Stacey Abrams in Georgia put it very well. You know, we keep talking about red states, and what you really need to talk about those states as is voter suppression states. 
And that makes a really big difference when you start to look at who actually makes it to the polls and how that's done. I don't think a lot of Americans recognize the degree, the degree to which it's easy to manipulate who actually shows up at the polls by putting, for example, too few voting machines in, in a district or making the wait times long. But that speaks, again, back to your point about the, the media and what kind of an election this is going to be because... One of the things that really has hit me since 2016 and that I think the media is missing and that perhaps the letters uh, from an American speak to is there are an awful lot of women involved in this election who have not been involved before because what's happening around the country so directly affects our lives. And this, to me, is the big political story that people are missing. There are an awful lot of women, especially women over 45, over 50, who are educated, well-connected, and very concerned about what's going on. And, you know, you talk about the electorate and liking Trump and all that and everyone's sitting in a diner somewhere in Indiana. And again, I'm from a red town, so I, I you know, I know a lot of Trump supporters. I, I understand how the dynamic works. But I have yet to see other than one article about middle-aged women sitting around in their living rooms making calls and writing letters and writing postcards and organizing people. And that is exactly the tactics that the Goldwater people used after Goldwater lost the election in 1964 that ended up creating the the movement, conservative uh, movement that we ended up with by the 1970s. I'm wondering, as you've watched the proceedings, is there anything that the Democrats have done that you think was clearly a mistake? Um, no, there isn't. In and, and one of the, that surprises me, to be honest. You know, I think Nancy Pelosi is a masterful speaker of the House. A lot of people hate her, but man, she manages things like nobody's business. What the Democrats have done well, though, is something that people have alluded to but not really identified, and that is that really beginning in the 1960s, uh, political parties stopped really paying attention to ideology. They stopped paying attention to to articulating why any of this matters. And, you know, it felt more and more, I think, as if politicians were trying to say, well, vote for me because I'm going to give you a bridge, or vote for me because I'm, you know, on your team of left-handed typists. It's a purely transactional approach. It was a transactional approach. And, and... Uh, what they have done so brilliantly is really to hark back to people like Barbara Jordan, for example, in the, the Watergate um, impeachment hearings, and to say, this is who America is. This is why this matters. And it is my sense that Americans have been starved for that, both on the Republican side and on the Democratic side. And on the Republican side, traditional Republicanism fell into that same trap of forgetting to remind people why their principles mattered. And instead, we got this movement conservative ideology that was so exciting, you know, the individual guy against the empire, just like Star Wars. And that's really what Reagan and the people following him have risen to power on the idea that one small guy is taking on the deep state, if you will. And I have called for a return to that sort of that principled argument about American politics for many years now with the idea that people want to believe their vote matters to something other than whether or not they're going to get a bridge. And Schiff especially, but also Hakeem Jeffries, um, Val Demings, have managed to articulate why any of this matters in a way that we really have not seen in American politics really almost since the 1970s. So I've been very impressed by that. I think Nancy Pelosi has done a brilliant job of playing the hand she's been dealt. I think impeachment was brought way too soon. Um, it's not something that should have been brought in the first term. Um, Donald Trump, you know, inadvertently forced the hand when the, the news of his attempt to uh, 
rope the Ukrainians in, into a dirty deed against the Bidens came out. The, the choice is very difficult because within Congress, the never-Trump ideology was so strong that it could no longer be contained. I'm amazed Nancy Pelosi was able to contain it for as long as she did. I mean, that shows an iron will and tremendous political skill. I mean, we're talking about a skill that goes, is equal to, if not greater than Lyndon Johnson's, who was considered, you know, a master parliamentarian. I think without Bolton's testimony, and I'm using Bolton as an all-encompassing name, Bolton and the two or three other unindicted co-conspirators, if you will, there was no chance that this is going to stick. We're talking, by the way, I should note, as the defense team wraps up their defense of the president. Uh, so, you know, we may not have the most recent developments taken into account when people hear this. But So I would say that the chances that the Senate is going to convict President Trump of the things the House has accused him of are very, very slim indeed. But at this point, that's not really the audience that people are looking for. And and that is that what we are seeing here is a play to the American people about what this government is supposed to be about. And, um, and th- on that, it looks increasingly as if the Republicans are losing. And this is one of the reasons they're scrambling the way they are. Because what, do you, what do you base that on when you say it looks increasingly like they're losing? Just what you're hearing or? No, the, the numbers that suggest, as of yesterday, that 50 percent of the American people want him removed. But more than that, what I am basing it on, I don't do polling. I watch politicians. And um, the fact that the senators at this point, since the news about Bolton dropped, have been so unsettled and have been floating all kinds of different possibilities for ways to get around the issue of uh, Bolton's testimony suggests to me they are nervous, and they're the ones who do do polling. So I'm watching them and thinking, that's a very agitated group of people. Something inside is roiling them up. I will say in terms of the point about um, the waiting for Trump's second term to, to impeach him, this, this is the reason this is such a crisis. Of course, what he was trying to do was destroy the next election. So, uh, you know, the idea that we wouldn't have another election that is not a free and fair election, there are many of us, and I am one of them, that thinks that uh, unless this next election is a free and fair election, there will be no more free and fair elections. And a number of us who study the rise of authoritarian regimes um, and I am not one of the most prominent of that. You can look at Tim Snyder from um, from Yale, for example. But there's a lot of us who know a lot about the rise of fascism and the rise of authoritarian regimes will tell you we are well on our way toward one. And is, is, the, is the game over yet? No, the game is not over yet, but we are getting closer and closer to the end of that game. And um, having to deal with the Ukraine scandal and the skewing of the next election in this term, uh, in terms of the timing... You know, I think what Pelosi was up against was not simply the fact that she had to hold back her caucus as long as she did, but also that had you started something now, people would have looked and said, you're simply trying to skew the 2020 election. I mean, she really hit the one place she could. What happens if the trial concludes in the Senate, the president is not removed from office, and then he wins re-election in November? That depends on whether the Democrats maintain a majority in the House. And... Um, Precedent suggests that they would, um, perhaps not as large a majority, but precedent suggests that they would. Uh, the long shot that the Democrats could take the Senate, which I intuitively think is possible, but I'd have a hard time explaining to a numbers cruncher how that would happen. 
Um, I think it would be very dangerous um, without the Democrats controlling both houses. Um, oh, think, even if they control the House but not the Senate, you see big trouble ahead? The, uh, the president just ignores them. Very simple. And is aided and abetted by Mitch McConnell at the at the Senate Majority Leader position. Um, I'm hesitant to um, to predict that yet because even if the Senate acquits and um, and Trump then gives a triumphant speech at the State of the Union um, and goes on to to um, be who he has been on steroids after that uh, until November, it is not going to be possible to bottle up all the information that is going to continue to flow out of this administration. One of the things that fascinates me about this is watching the senators because they are caught between needing to protect Trump in order to protect their own standing within their constituencies and recognizing that their votes to acquit are going to mean they are locked into defending everything else the man has done. The dropping is only now starting. You know, we've got the Supreme Court is going to be deciding whether or not uh, the House Intelligence Committee should be able to look at his and his family's finances. We have his taxes hanging out there. We have other books coming out. We have Bolton's books coming out. As this is going to happen, that's the real question. What are the senators going to do? Are they going to come forward and say, oh, oopsie poopsie, we shouldn't have acquitted him? Well, I don't <laughs> expect that to happen. But are they going to come out and say, yes, we des- we wanted to create a president who could not be touched no matter what he did? Uh, a lot of us are afraid that's what they're going to do. But, you know, the American people are not silent yet. And that, you know, I expect we're going to see a very unsettled several months before the November election and thereafter until the next inauguration of whomever it's going to be. Heather Cox Richardson, if people want to find your daily digest of all things impeachment, what do they need to do? I publish it every night or usually about 2 o'clock, 2 to 3 o'clock in the morning on Facebook under Heather Cox Richardson. It is also available as a free newsletter at Substack, and it's called Letters from an American by Heather Cox Richardson. And it is free, and it will always stay free. Heather, thanks for taking the time to talk with me and Peter. It's a pleasure. And that is going to do it for this installment of The Scrum. Big thanks to the very busy Heather Cox Richardson of Boston College for making time to join us, and as always, to you for making the time to listen. Subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't already, rate it, and let us know what we're doing right or wrong. You can get us by email at scrum at wgbh.org or on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam, and Peter is at Kadzis. Our producer is Zoe Matthews. Her Twitter handle is Zoe S as in snazzy, Matthews with one T. And our engineer was John Parker. As always, we got crucial production help from Gary Mott. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.